Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Hello and welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. This is the first episode I've recorded in six months and you might not have noticed because I batch recorded so many episodes before I went on maternity leave. So this is a really special one for me because I'm connecting with someone who does pretty much what I do but in a different part of the world. And in this episode with Jennifer Kemp, we're going to really think about perfectionism as a concept, as something that we treat with our clients, but also something that shows up in ourselves, both of us being recovering perfectionists ourselves. And I hope that you will find this episode a little bit more free, a little bit more joyful and full of mistakes. We talk over each other at times and I am showing up to the recording wearing pyjama bottoms. So in this episode, we will show you that you can burn bright without burning out, to follow your ambition, to do things that matter to you, but also treating yourself better, as if you matter too. We will talk about that inner critical voice that often gets in the way of us stepping up and stepping out, getting out of our comfort zone, that also berates us for when we make mistakes. We'll touch upon shame and fear of failure as underlying emotions to perfectionism. We talk about willingness to be uncomfortable with anxiety around mistakes so you can expand your life, following your values and what lights you up. So living an imperfect life that really matters to you is all about stepping out of your comfort zone, whilst not berating yourself for any mistakes you make along the way. We'll talk about how there is hope that we can change these patterns, the tyranny of perfectionism, by looking at the costs of overworking and the avoidance that we get caught up in when we are this scared of failing. If this is you, someone who does burn bright, have a lot to offer, but you're holding yourself back because you think it's not going to be good enough. Maybe you don't get started on something or you never finish your projects or you take a very long time to do so, wasting time on checking your work rather than trusting that it will be good enough and just submitting it. If you are holding yourself back in life, not having enough joy and fun and creativity in your life because of that inner critical voice telling you you're not good enough, then join me for my group coaching program starting in 2022. So drop me a message through my website, thethomasconnection.co.uk to join this sisterhood, if you may, of women trying to live a more expansive life, letting go of perfection. Now let's introduce my guest. Jennifer Kemp is a privately practicing clinical psychologist, author and busy mum who works with clients who are struggling with perfectionism and the mental health problems that perfectionism facilitates and maintains. She is the author of the new book, The ACT Workbook for Perfectionism, and she integrates acceptance and commitment therapy, using the acronym ACT, with behavioural and compassion-focused approaches in her therapeutic and consultation work. She also presents internationally on the topic of perfectionism and is available for public speaking, conferences and workshops. 
Now that's quite the resume. So don't be afraid. I've had a lot of high striving, high achieving people on this podcast, but Jennifer will also show you her common humanity in the areas that she struggles to let go of perfection. Welcome to Pause Purpose Play, Jennifer. It's such an honor to have you here. It feels like we're maybe two years too late to have this chat that we've been talking about for a long time. I know. I've been really looking forward to catching up with you. And I, I guess you've been pretty busy as well. Uh, so it's been it's finally nice to find the time to talk. Yeah, it's funny with that thing of busyness and how it gets in the way of connection sometimes, which is uh, I'm sure lots mm. of the things we're going to cover today will be about that. When are you when are you too busy? You know, is there such a thing? Or can busyness be productive or is it actually just overactivity and overworking? So mm. that's going to be a really interesting chat that we're going to have today. But I thought we'll just start with just getting it a little bit real here because this is the first podcast um, guest episode that I've recorded in like six months. So for full disclosure, I'm sitting here in a fancy top, you know, business at the top and my Mm -hmm. pyjama bottoms at the bottom, (laughs) because that's sort of (laughs) how you roll when you have a little one. Um, So what are you doing? Similar over here, I I think I sent you a frantic message just before we started this saying, uh, just checking that we're not recording the video here because I'm definitely in my, you know, little uh, air quotes, evening casuals. So I think we're like tracksuit bottoms here and the t-shirt <laughs> so pretty yes. much the same yeah that's, I, the, that's the way so to roll important. it's the sort of post 2020 so casual wear isn't it my goodness <laughs> this is like is this, this the question nowadays isn't it really like is this good enough to wear to the shops you know can I get away yeah. with it you know oh well, I'm wearing my Ugg boots my slippers or whatever can I get away with it at the shops today yeah pretty mm. much it's to find a whole different range of casual wear yeah Definitely. And I think that's been a really key concept in in all the work that you and I both do around perfectionism Mm -hmm. is that that good enoughness. What is good enough? And Mm -hmm. when I say good enough to my perfectionistic clients, they almost go like, hiss. It's Mm -hmm. it's such a, it sort of feels that that is good enough is not good enough. Good enough is failing. Good enough is below the mark. Good enough is less than average, whereas Mm. it isn't. Um, So I think that's something I want to talk about more today of how do we how do we sell in this concept of perfectionism? Because a lot of people feel alienated by it and say, I'm not a perfectionist. My house is a mess. Um, Thinking that you have to be achieving perfection in order to Mm. count yourself as a perfectionist. So why don't we start there a little bit about what perfectionism is and what it isn't? Yeah, sure. I suspect we see it in similar ways. So probably what I'm going to talk about is fairly familiar to your regular listeners. So I look at perfectionism, I guess, as a set of behaviors. And I do that because I'd like to think about perfectionism as something we can change. So the first thing I look at is this this sort of the processes, really. So the first thing I look at is this tendency to set really high standards. And I think that's what you're referring to, that kind of, um, can it be good enough versus I must sort of a, um, I must always do my best kind of standard. And the standards that we set, there's nothing wrong with them. Like the first thing I say to clients is, I'm not going to tell you to drop your standards because honestly, we don't have a lot of time together and I'm not interested interested in wasting it. So I don't think you drop your standards and I'm not going to try and get you to do that. The problem is when your standards become rigid rules. I think there's there's quite a difference between wanting to do well and I have to do well on everything all the time. You know, that I want to do well at school, shifting into I must get an A 
on every single assignment for every subject and have a perfect GPA. That sort of thing is really unhelpful and puts us under enormous pressure. And the other thing that perfectionists do with standards, and I'm always looking for this, is that tendency to keep raising those standards out over time. Because each time you do that thing we do where it's like, oh, you know that, you know, that wasn't so hard. Anyone could have done it. Next time I'm going to do it just that little bit better. And the problem with that way of thinking, and I say us because I count myself in this perfectionist category, the problem is that um, we're always setting standards that are out of reach. We're always setting standards that are just a little bit higher than we can probably achieve. And that means we always end up feeling like we're failing. So if we're always setting standards that are really high and that, that are um, that are hard for us or sometimes quite often impossible for us to achieve and we end up feeling like we're failing all the time, of course, we're going to be trying very hard not to feel like that. So lots and lots of things that we end up doing to try and make sure we don't fail, uh, including like working harder really actively and also avoiding a whole bunch of stuff because we don't want to fail. Because the cost of failing is this, is this constant, relentless self-criticism, this constantly finding ourselves critiquing and, and uh, picking on every little thing that we do. So those are the sort of three things that I'm, I'm really focused on when I'm looking for perfectionism, the three kind of drivers that, that sort of high standards and tendency to raise them over time. Uh, a fear of failing and the self-criticism that comes with that. And then out of those, constantly looking for different ways that we can avoid both the failing and the self-criticism that comes with that. And one thing you mentioned at the beginning, which I think provides a sense of hope, although it can feel really difficult to listen to this if you recognize these patterns in yourself, the element of hope that I often hold for my clients is that it is a set of behaviors. And behaviors can be unlearned, behaviors can be tweaked, it takes time and it's hard work. Mm-hmm. But this is very different to how we often think of perfectionism as a personality trait. Like this is this is just me, this is who I am. I am the perfectionist. Um so I wonder if you have any thoughts around that when when clients come to you and, and talk about, I can't change this. this, this is who I am. So what I find is that people do feel like they're stuck. They feel like, and the message that we've often got is that this is part of who I am. Often we're coming from families where they're, you know, also mum and dad are perfectionistic. We have teachers who have been, who have, you know, set high standards for us and family members. Our bosses are, you know, wanting more from us all the time or a really high standard of work. We can feel like that that drive is just normal. And that, that we, that sort of sense of pressure that we feel is something that we can't change. But I absolutely agree. It can. It is something. These are set of, you know, I guess we're psychologists. So we would talk about this. This is a set of behavioral processes. These are like common patterns that we get stuck in and that can definitely be changed. Um, and it takes effort. And I think it takes specific effort too. It's not just doing a whole bunch of stuff like you can. You can target certain things and it makes a really big difference, I think, if you're thoughtful about what you do. You don't have to change everything because, of course, perfectionists want to become maybe imperfect and do it perfectly. That's the paradox of working with perfectionism, yes. isn't it? 
So um, we don't need to change everything. There might just be a few things that if you could change it can kind of shift it from being that really unhelpful thing in your life back into that more helpful zone where it's really helping, helping you with that kind of positive striving and there's joy and, and working hard and doing a great job and a sense of achievement and all the great stuff you get with perfectionism and that that is, um, yeah, that's something that you sort of lose sight of at some point and we need to get back to. Mm. And we sometimes that's referred as to as um, helpful perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you obviously talk about that of how when we are striving for excellence, that, that can give us things that can yield uh, goal accomplishments and, and achievement. And obviously this podcast is partly caused, called around purpose. So Mm. actually can be really meaningful so when we think about it being helpful it's because it's then helping us to reach goals it's helping us to do things that matter to us but when it's unhelpful then obviously we have those costs of perfectionism that you talk about in the book as well do you want to mention a bit more about that because that's often a way I find that I can draw people into change to looking at look at what this is costing you yes it's yielding you a lot but is the cost greater than the gain yeah absolutely the cost comes from when we get stuck doing behaviours that give us a sense of short-term relief but cause us these long-term consequences, these long-term costs in our lives. It, and it can be really anything. There's a lot of stereotypes about the sort of type A overachieving perfectionist out there. But I find just as many people who are perfectionistic who are frozen and unable to do very much at all because they can't do it well enough to meet their standards. So you'll get a lot of unhelpful patterns around um, checking and reassurance seeking. And we can kind of take a leaf out of the OCD playbook in that way of like trying to do things just right, a lot of overworking and repeating ourselves to make sure is it is it good enough? Is it finally good enough? And we can get a whole bunch of patterns of like, I'm not going to do this at all. I mean, that was me as a kid. I am not naturally sporty. I enjoy exercising as much as anyone, probably not all the time, but I don't, I'm not really good at team sports. I never was really instantly talented at them. Maybe if I'd actually done them, I might have become so. But because I was a perfectionist growing up, I just would find every excuse. I knew I couldn't do it well and I'd find every excuse not to do it. And so the costs come as much from maybe overworking and um, really like driving yourself into the ground, they come as much from that as they do from avoiding things. And of course, if you're avoiding a lot of things because you're not great at them, your life becomes smaller. You know, you, you miss out on things. If I need to be kind of perfectly put together, uh, look, you know, look gorgeous and be, you know, witty and entertaining every time I go out with my friends. That's a lot of pressure. So it wouldn't be surprising at all if I was some nights to go, oh my gosh, I can't get it together. I feel really off tonight and I just cancel. If you keep canceling, you're going to miss out. In fact, people will stop inviting you eventually. And so, when I'm talking about like the failure that we're avoiding, I'm really like, it's any time when we don't meet our standards and then we either work harder to try and meet them and get ourselves into strife that way or kind of pull out altogether. 
and and sort mm. of passively avoid things. And you know that's why I think depression is so linked to perfectionism because we end up really disconnected from all the things that are important to us. You know, the things that give our life meaning from people, from opportunities, from you know chances to grow. Maybe new jobs or studying. You know, we miss out because we don't think we can do it well enough.、Um, and any time we're doing that, we're making our life smaller. Yeah, I really agree with that because it's it's one of those things that can become problematic. The analysis paralysis, or you know, the、mm. procrastination that can come from is this going to be good enough? The, the the freezing that I then see means that people then struggle to take on board. Concepts of perfectionism as well, because I'm not achieving my goals. I'm not an overperformer. I'm not overactive. I'm not, you know, the type A,、mm. um, because I do nothing, and that's、mm. I think very difficult. And coming back to what you said earlier about you don't have to change everything. I, I find that it's one of the key concepts I have to work with in therapy. It's almost like the therapy about the therapy. As well,、mm. the meta levels there. Yes. Otherwise, if you feel I have to change everything about myself, you know, to not be a perfectionist anymore, we keep coming back to that self-critical concept of I am deeply flawed and not good enough. Mm-hmm. 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 Do you come across that as well when you work in therapy? That even the act of changing in therapy feeds that message that I'm flawed, and until I've overcome this, quote unquote, I'm not going to be worthy. Oh, I find it all the time. I work a lot with adults with eating and weight management problems, and、uh, OCD and and perfectionism just as an issue in itself, causing anxiety and depression. If I think about, and so many people struggle with their eating and their、um, and their weight. So many. If you think about that cycle that you get on. I've eaten this food. I feel terrible about myself. I can never stick to my plans. There's no point even trying now. I may as well have some more tomorrow. I'll get up and I won't eat at all,、uh, and I'll try and get you know get back on track. And I'm going to walk every day. And there's this sort of whole cycle of setting goals that are too hard. Like I'm going to have a perfect diet. I'm going to exercise every day, and then. Setting the standard too high and then failing to achieve it,、uh, and then feeling like a failure, and then around we go again. I feel like I'm、mm. a failure. There's no point looking after my body because I'm never going to do it well. I may as well eat that food, or you know, and around we go again. And、um, yeah, it is really, really interesting, kind of breaking that apart because we have to both address the behaviour. Like I have to think about like what are the Kind of physical triggers and cues, and what's going on in your life that's maybe triggering off the the eating part of this, and all of that kind of self criticism that is also feeding it. Not mean to use a pun, but kind of feeding that system as well. That's both coming from I'm a failure, and then well, I may as well, you know, forget it now, and feeding back into those problems. It's a、mm. vicious, vicious cycle. You know, I, I hate my body. Um, so I'm not going to look after my body. So I hate my body, and I don't look after my body. And around and around we go.、Mm. The spiral gets worse and worse, doesn't it?、Yeah. And really driven by what you're describing there, which is the all or nothing thinking patterns as well. That we started this conversation by thinking about behaviours, and there's definitely a lot of them. You know, overchecking our work, maybe avoiding things, seeking reassurance from others that it's going to be good enough. 
there's a lot of things like that that can fall in the realm of OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of the thinking patterns that drive those behaviors as well, like you, you explained there of must and should and never and always, these very strong all or nothing um, almost paradigm that the perfectionist person follows, I find really, really difficult. And that feeds mm. into therapy as well. You know, I must do all my homework perfectly. I've had, you know, some of the, the most severe um, entrenched patterns that I've worked with. We've had to work in therapy over many years because as soon as there is a small mistake or failure, they drop out of therapy because the shame is too intense. So I wanted to see if you could think about that underlying emotion as well of of what drives that. You know, when we realize that we think we made a mistake, Mm. probably not going to be judged by others the way that we judge it. Mm -hmm. But when we think we've made that mistake and the shame comes up, can you talk a little Mm. bit about that cycle as well? Yeah, shame is a very powerful motivator of behavior, isn't it? It's probably the top emotion that humans will go out of their way to try and avoid. And memories that are attached to experiences of shame are ones that shape the course of our entire lives. So shame is something that you know we, we all experience at various points. And once you've had those experiences, you pretty much never want to go back there again. So because uh, there's this sort of chronic feeling like you're failing and trying to get away from failure, you desperately, actually by trying to get away from failure, you're really trying to get away from the experiences of shame. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel shame like a sick feeling in my stomach and a tension in my chest and racing thoughts about, well, we know shame is not just like I've done something wrong. There's also that element of and it's my fault, uh, and I should have done better. There those shoulds again. So shame is this kind of soup of mixture of emotions and thoughts. And, yeah, we, we really, really work hard to avoid that. Uh, and the self-criticism, the self inner self-critic that comes up with pe- perfectionism as well, that shame um, is triggered off by that too. A lot of those thoughts are, are going to be like, I should have done better. How could I be so stupid? I'm a complete idiot. I should have known this. Um, everyone will be judging me. And even if it's a private mistake, it's like, I can't believe I made that mistake. I'm so hopeless. So they're very shaming thoughts. When I think about clients like that who'll drop out of therapy, we really need to be, and I'm sure that's what you're doing, is like targeting the shame experience, aren't we? Like how do we kind of find a way of being kinder to ourselves? How can we find a way when we're struggling to not blame ourselves but more recognize that everyone makes mistakes, that it's part of the human existence it's part of being human to suffer to struggle to make mistakes and that sense of common humanity and that's why I lean quite heavily on the work of people like Paul Gilbert and Kristen Neff and Laura Silberstein Turch the self-compassion is essential when we're working with perfectionism I think it's Mm. it's one of the key antidotes to that and learning how, how to be kind to yourself when you spent your whole life cr- criticizing yourself, it's a big task. There's no doubt about it. It takes some work, but it's worth it. That's all I can say. 
personally, I've worked on my, I've been working on my perfectionism for 10 or 12 years now, probably really consciously started that journey about that time ago. And it's, it's through some workshops I did and learned more about self-compassion in like back in 2017. I think that was a big turning point for me where I started to appreciate that I could have compassion for myself and I could even have compassion for the part of me that was criticizing myself too, that all of me, could I could be kinder, I could be warmer towards me and that when it's made a huge difference whenever I have made a mistake and let, let me tell you, I make more than ever now and that's the joy of it is I'm actually making more mistakes and I'm okay with them. I'm a, not always, but I'm a lot more okay with them because I can go, well, ah, there I go again, you know, and just sort of be more gentle with myself about it. So yeah, I think, I think tackling the shame in that cycle, it's, it comes down to self-compassion. Um, and that, that's those skills that we can often use very well with other people. Mm, because it's a lot easier. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, we somehow are learning to turn them around on ourselves and that's an interesting challenge. Yeah, and I think that's it's something that can become a little bit clickbaity or, you know, Instagram worthy of just like, love yourself, be kind to yourself. And mm. for you and I both know that when we sit with people who might have, you know, attachment traumas from childhood or, you know, a long-standing issue with anxiety and depression that wasn't picked up on being linked to perfectionism. So they've mm. had multiple episodes of treatment for depression or for anxiety problems like OCD, for instance. And then they finally go, oh, right, there's this overarching umbrella that holds all of this in that actually causes me to have episode of episode of depression. And mm -hmm. you've talked about that before, about how sort of the penny dropped for you about it being perfectionism and that it wasn't picked up by others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you want to mention a bit more about that, of how, how it felt for you as a psychologist to, to realize that you have this inner work to do? Yeah, absolutely. I've been a perfectionist my whole life. I now talk about myself as a recovering perfectionist. I don't, I, and I, I'm okay with that because I, I have found in the last year that I've got hooked back in more times than I can, I'm probably even aware of. I had an eating disorder myself when I was in my teens and, um, and then I struggled with anxiety right through my twenties and had a, one major depressive episode in my mid-20s as a result of kind of a big work project going wrong and and I quit my job at the time and I spent several weeks in bed and it was a really really dark dark period but even and even as I recovered from that I was still struggling with anxiety so I'm getting into my 30s and whenever my boss would give me a piece of feedback that my performance could have been better in some way or some area I could improve, I would fall to pieces. Maybe not necessarily at that moment, but I would certainly go away and spend sometimes days really getting stuck and ruminating, agonizing over everything I'd done wrong and what they said and what I should have done and going nuts on the self-criticism really what I think about it just a huge deep dive into a dark place and I do that as well in advance of getting a performance appraisal or something like that 
And it was only just sort of then, it, it was in my early 20s. So I had, I uh, was just about to start retrain as a clinical psychologist. I was already trained as a psychologist and to specialize in that area. And I did a one-day workshop by Professor Tracy Wade, who's a world leader in eating disorders and has done, has written a book on perfectionism and done a lot of work in that space as well. And she ran a one-day workshop here in Adelaide and uh, called Perfectionism as a Transdiagnostic Process. And I walked in the door and she was playing this song by Rachel Ferguson. I'd never heard it before called Never Good Enough. And my, I just as I heard the lyrics coming in, my eyes just completely filled with tears. And I'm there thinking, oh my gosh, I'm surrounded by, you know, professionals like my peers and psychologists and um, trying to keep it together. And I struggled to not cry the whole day. And I sat there and wrote copious notes about all of these different um, mental health and behavioral problems, you know, the eating problems and the anxiety and the depression and the difficulty with feedback. And I wrote a page of notes that linked it all to perfectionism. And, you know, I'd had therapy that was helpful in my late teens for, for like my worries about eating. And I'd had it, it again for anxiety and depression. Like I'd had it across the years and I had a therapist at the time. And I walked in and I said, here, this, this is what ties it all together. And not one of them had targeted that as an issue in itself. And maybe they'd seen it as part of my personality and they'd assumed it was something that I couldn't, that we couldn't change. And I, that's, I think, whilst I love personality theory and I've always found it really fascinating, it doesn't tell you what to do about it. It doesn't give you any like clues about whether you can change this. And I really, really strongly believe and have personally experienced and seen at work that you can change these things. So I walked in and said this. This is what I need to work on here. And we started working on it there. Um, I don't see that therapist anymore. I've been working on it with various supervisors and in therapy from time to time, continuing to do so. I think sometimes I use like podcast recordings to go through mm -hmm. my therapy um, because I'm always talking about my own personal stuff. I'm starting to think uh, I had a huge, I, uh, I guess you call it a relapse last year when I was way out of my comfort zone, promoting a book, going on podcasts for the first time, running workshops internationally, which was the first time I'd ever done that. And I was getting really stuck in like over-preparing and spending months preparing irrelevant things and then having to rush at the end to actually pull the slides together for these workshops and um, so anxious about running and I couldn't believe it and uh, I remember I was running this course and I got through the first I was you know I was not well that morning before I ran that session but it went well because you know I think I'm a red light performer and when the camera's on kind of <laughs> thing I can go uh, thankfully and I and I know this stuff so I could do it um, and I got to the end of the session exhausted and I had a someone else's book on perfectionism I was reviewing at the time and I looked at it and went oh my god <laughs> this is me <laughs> i can't believe this <laughs> i've done exactly what i've been telling people not to do but that's the irony isn't it realizing it that actually oh mm. 
and that feeds that inner critic even more. You know, I get I get caught up in the sort of concept of it's the blind leading the blind whenever oh, yeah. I have a bit of a setback in, in my recovery from perfectionism that, mm. oh, my goodness, I can't help clients with this. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to find out that I'm not fully free from this yet. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things I wanted to chat to you about today, that do we ever get fully free from it? Or is it that how can we live a meaningful, full, rich life even with this aspect of us, that this is just one version of me and I can still show up in my life and step out of that comfort zone like you did. And I'll let you in on a secret here. I was watching you from the sidelines as you did that, as you stepped up and you stepped out. And I saw you announcing these workshops, was it the ACBS conference maybe? Mm -hmm. And you know Mm -hmm. what? I was thinking, oh my god now i can't do that jennifer's doing it all and the green-eyed monster of envy was oh, right no. there with me no. yeah and it's funny and then i had to laugh about it because like this is ridiculous oh. um little did and you it know is i was terrified right little did you know well, you know it's that we, we can know that we can with compassion can't we that most yeah. people are terrified when they step mm. out of their comfort zone it's human and common and okay to be anxious when you are about to play big and you mm. are playing big at the moment you've got an excellent book out thank which you. i wish i'd wrote um yeah. thank you she I'd means re- a lot from you <laughs> i really know because i know you know this stuff inside out so um yeah well and then my inner critic says well do you really have you read enough books have you read enough articles do you need to study a oh, little yeah. bit more <laughs> yeah. and i have done that same workshop that you did but not in adelaide so it's it's funny how we come to this with this mind of ours that is so tricky and it's just so full of self-criticism. But what mm-hmm. you're saying there, which I think is again coming back to hope, is that self-compassion is the antidote to self-criticism. It soothes that inner critical voice. Mm. It doesn't get rid of it. And that's not the aim here. It's not that I'll ever get to the point where I won't have something showing up first that might be unkind to me or envious or self-critical it's like oh now I'm much quicker at catching it Mm. so I can then say to myself but Michaela you're heavily pregnant Mm. and you know and you're not even like doing anything in ACBS how would they even know who you are (laughs) so you need to step up and step out too so I'm writing on my own book about perfectionism which is very different to yours and they will complement each other and there will be great companions on the bookshelf and we have to think that there is space for all of us Yes, there of is course. space for doing different versions of this. So of one of the things I love about your book is thinking about purpose and meaning. So that, mm-hmm. that's kind of almost like that compass that we try to follow. So rather than getting really stuck and just holding ourselves back with self-criticism, saying you're not good enough, you're not ready, you can't do this, cue paralysis, mm. we're using your, using your tools in the book to help people slowly, gradually go for progress over perfection, to go, go to what matters. So shall we think a little bit about what that means? You know, we, we often throw these terms around and because it's day-to-day work for us, like values and doing what matters. But what does that actually mean? Tell the listeners a bit more about how we can live a more meaningful life with values. Yeah, absolutely. How can we live an imperfect life and be imperfect at managing our perfectionism too, right? And at the same time, step into a place that's really important for us. It was really, as you could tell how passionate I am about this topic, it was really important for me to talk about that and to share my story and to share, you know, the, the work that I've been doing, uh, not coming from a 
place of trying to make money because, you know, I don't think you make money out of writing, honestly. No, nothing. <laughs> uh, no, but, um, but because that is that story for me is really, really important and I had something I wanted to say and wanted to share and I think that's, you know, the heart of values, isn't it? That's It's finding the things that light you up and that I, I often talk to, talk about it more in workshops, but sometimes with clients, you know, I'm looking for that sparkle in the eye, you know, the glisten in the eye. So when I'm, if I, if you were my client and we were talking about what's important for you down the road, I'd be looking for the sorts of things that if we could put them together would make your eyes light up. So we might be talking about, you know, being a loving and playful mother, for example, and um, being able to do really meaningful work and being a loving partner and family member, uh, caring and helping people and expressing yourself creatively. Like some of these things might be values of yours, I'm guessing, um, because also because they're probably universal in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, helping people is, seems to be a really common value. And as we find the right words and we land on it, and you have to be really careful when you're working with values that they don't sound like, you know, corporate slogans. I'm not really interested in finding like the word. What I want to do is help people find the thing, the idea that they get this little glisten in their eye that they can think, yeah, wow, sort of asking questions like, what would life be like if that's what you were doing? You know, you could balance it as best you can because it's never perfect, some time with your family and loving connections with people and doing really meaningful work. You know, what would it be like if, if that was something that sort of oriented the things you were doing? in your life because that's certainly what I'm aiming for right mm. and that's when you you light up you can feel this kind of energy bubble up in you and it's it's hard um a lot of mental illnesses in some in particular like OCD really rob you and eating disorders rob you of that ability to look forwards because you're so busy tackling the present you're so stuck in this sort of tug of war with a monster we like to say and act you know stuck kind of in this perennial battle with yourself that you forget to look forwards and so I do find you might have this experience too I'm sure some people really struggle with these questions because like what do you want your life to be about is is a, an immense question and yet it's at the heart of everything because it's got to be worth it you know Whatever whatever changes you're trying to make, they've got to be worth it. And they're worth it if they move you towards a life that's meaningful for you in that way, um, that energizes you in that way. Mm. And so spending an extra three hours a day at work because you've checked every email 10 times and recalculated all of the numbers in your reports multiple times to check that they're correct, and you're doing less work than you should and it's taking longer than it should um you know is that moving you towards a life that's got that sparkle you know got that glisten i, I doubt it you know i really doubt mm. it most people would be pretty horrified if that was <laughs> so those are the questions that really kind of draw this uh you started at the beginning you know that kind of 
how do we know kind of the, whether it's unhelpful or not you know it's like those sorts of questions how is how is this thing that you're doing moving you towards a life that's really worth living that's rich and full mm-hmm. and meaningful are you getting further down the road um you know what's happening to you and people will just say i'm stuck i'm going nowhere uh it's really obvious when you put it those things contrast those things I find that really powerful as well in therapy and and with myself is that when I reflect on, isn't it such a shame that you're doing these things? It's such a waste of your time. And isn't it such a shame that there is no joy here? I think the moment then when the penny drops for my clients and for myself, it's when you hit that moment of sadness. Mm -hmm. I am so sad for myself that I'm living like this. And Mm -hmm. often people then think, well, therapy is supposed to make me feel better, right? <laughs> Why am I not feeling better? Now you have me feeling like, shit, I'm really sad now. And often we then have to discuss how actually feeling sadness for yourself is an ex- you know, expression of self-compassion. I'm moved by my suffering. I'm moved by the fact that I live my life like this every day. Mm-hmm. What would it be like if I changed that for 5%, 10%? Yeah. Are we talking about these I, I think about sort of small shifts versus deep dives and often people want mm-hmm. the deep dive and they're not, they're not ready. <laughs> like I'm going to dive in and do it all, change it all. Actually, well, perfectly, just right? A small shift. Yeah, perfectly, yeah. obviously. <laughs> and yeah. God forbid that, you know, you, if you would, you would dare to, to, to sink for a bit, then you would have to berate yourself for that as well. Mm. So you have to jump into the deep end and you have to be able to swim straight away and do it perfectly Olympic standard. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we think, what's the small shift here? What's dipping your toes in the water? What would that look like? Motivated by the sadness for yourself because you matter too. You are worth something. So you said you kind of use these phrases of, is it worth it? Am I worth it? You know, mm. we often think about worthlessness and, and being, you know, having worth. That when we come back to that question of the eating pattern you described, that you know, mm. I hate my body, so I'm going to treat it as if it's worthless. Mm. And then I will hate it even more and I will feel worthless. Whereas if I think I'm feeding myself a nutritious meal here, I'm feeding myself some vegetables, they're good for me. Adding things in rather than taking things out, I think is very powerful. So you, the values approach you're describing is we're adding more meaningful things in. Yeah. We're not saying stop doing this, don't do that, don't berate yourself. Actually, if we put some more stuff in to make your life richer, I think of the research around flow states being really powerful here. That when mm. I know I work a lot with play, that when I get perfectionists to play, oh. oh, it's beautiful. It takes a long time, hence why play is the, the third of the three words. So I have to do the pause and the purpose before I do the play. Oh. When we lose ourselves in play, we are literally in the moment. We are in that flow. And often the inner critical voice goes a little bit quieter for a moment and you get relief. So I wanted to think about that together with you. How do we get relief from this? How do we break free from perfectionism? When both you and I now have shared that this is an ongoing inner work in progress. How do we break free from it? Is there such a thing as breaking free from perfectionism? Or is it more you learn to live with it and you, and you choose wisely to make your life more meaningful? Yeah, great question. I don't think you are ever completely free of it. And I... I think to aim for that is to set yourself a perfectionistic standard, to be honest. Mm. So that's, again, that paradox. You're kind of shooting yourself in the foot if you're aiming to be free of this completely. So 
it isn't about just sort of tolerating it though or putting up with it. It's about learning new options, new ways, expanding your like repertoire of options when you are in a situation where you could get stuck in doing sort of the, you know, maybe checking that email 10 times. Maybe you've also got an option that you know that you can just check it once and send it and probably the world won't end, you know, and, and so you can live with that uncertainty that, it, that something bad might happen. So I do take a lot, again, out of that OCD playbook in terms of treatment around learning to be willing to feel uncomfortable. In ACT, we call that acceptance. I often prefer and use the word willingness with my clients because I find that acceptance has many different meanings and uh, and has been co-opted by many different people. Willingness is about, willingness has a quality, it's a bit like jumping. I usually say you can't half jump. If you half jump, it's a step. So there's this sort of sense that to jump, both feet need to leave the floor. And uh, willingness is a little bit like that. It's choosing to do something that is important to you in the presence of a whole bunch of stuff that's probably going to just going to show up when you do it. So would you be willing? To send a text to your friends and to arrange a night out, even though that's going to bring up feelings of anxiety around whether they like me and whether I'm, you know, um, going to be a good enough friend or embarrassment that I didn't text earlier. Like what? And I'm not being a good enough friend, you know, in the past. Whatever it's bringing up, are you willing to send that text and be imperfect in that moment? I get people sometimes playing around with this idea and they sending um, texts with mistakes, spelling mistakes in them is super fun exposure task to do. The look of horror, mm. the look of horror when I say, I'd like you to spell your wrong. Mm. Um, and, uh, On purpose? <laughs> Why would anyone and, do that? And <laughs> you can't send another text after saying my therapist made me spell it or correct yeah. it in any way. And they're like, because ah! <laughs> that was their immediate thought. It's like, oh, I'll fix it. It's like, you know, um, why would we do that? Because we're learning to sit with the discomfort, to be willing to be uncomfortable, that we can make a mistake and guess what? The world doesn't end. Mm-hmm. And a little mistake like that doesn't actually matter. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to do those kinds of things, to take little tiny steps. And of course, and you've, you've nudged on this as well in this conversation, most of my um, clients would say, sure, I'll do that and I'll also do all these other things. No, 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 no. <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> you don't get to leap to the end of this process and avoid all the messy middle. You, mm. you have to make mistakes as part of this. And so we do a lot of work with what shows up. You know, that, that discomfort, feeling it, noticing it in your body, noticing every time it shows up and getting familiar with it. And it can become like um, a familiar friend in a way. Oh, there it is again. I had a client yesterday. This was actually an OCD client. So to be fair, it's just this sort of terminology. We play a game here. You might do a similar, you probably do a similar one over there. It's called um, Spotto and uh, probably called different things. But when you you have kids, every time you see like a drive past a yellow car, the first person to yell Spotto, 
you know, wins a point kind of thing. Yeah. So it's like, spot a yellow card, you play it, what do you call it? I spy, maybe? Oh, or, yes, like, I, I don't know. Game. Yeah. You know the sort of game? So, like, yeah. we can almost play, or bingo, we can almost play, um, like, spot with it. Oh, there it is again. You know, when yeah. I make a mistake, I found this really helpful personally. When I make a mistake, I feel a drop, like a lurch in my stomach and a bit of tension in my chest. So if there's been times where I've been feeling like, oh, why do I feel so uneasy about this? And then I've gone, oh, spotto, you know, there's that feeling mm-hmm. again. There you are. Yeah. I've, it's because I've made a mistake. Like sometimes that intellectually it follows, you know, your body knows. So mm. my body's t- reminded me, I was like, oh, it's because I made a mistake. You know, that's what's going on here. And that's been super helpful because then I can go, yeah. And then I can practice that self-compassion. Yeah, I made a mistake and I feel bad about that and I don't like it. And Or maybe I need to apologize. There's probably nothing I can do about that now. So mm. I'm going to let wait and I'm going to let that feeling pass. And it will pass because we know eventually it will pass and sometimes quite quickly. And I'm going to move on. But I don't have mm. to do anything about feeling that way. I can just, I can let it flow through me. And then at some point I'll find well, that's, that's beautiful because you – sorry, I cut you off there. Oh, speaking okay. of making mistakes. Mm. <laughs> I think that's beautiful though because it's, um, it's so, you know, signaling there that we are still not thinking of radical acceptance as passive resignation. You're not just doing nothing. You are doing something. Mm-hmm. You're choosing to let it go. You know, yeah. I, I often play on my, on, my, on my day retreats and on my pause purpose play day retreats, I often play let it go from frozen and, and other songs like that because it's you have to let that shit go and that doesn't mean that you'll feel better necessarily you'll feel the discomfort whilst it's there and as a little guide um there's a there's an amazing podcast in the uk which you may not have come across which is called how to fail with elizabeth day and no, I mean, I'm on my desk, that down. <laughs> yeah yeah listen to it it's beautiful it's essentially goes um through three main failures that you know a significant person who's been interviewed has experienced in their life and what that taught them. So I have one of her books called Philosophy, a handbook for when things go wrong. I have that on my desk um, under a beautiful lamp that I bought and it's the same color as the front cover of her book. And it sits there because I needed that as a reminder to let go of trying to change and fight against that feeling you get when you make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Because writing a book is full of that right you go through the editing process everyone else like oh look at here on the same page you made 12 mistakes and it's a really difficult thing to tolerate so I think willingness bringing it back full circle willingness is a much greater explanation for what Mm -hmm. we do there what we choose to do I'm choosing willingly to tolerate this really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. feeling because it gets me to where I want to be yes both the goal which is finish the book Yes, but also the value, which might be about helpfulness or, you know, being in my zone of genius or whatever that sort of value is that you think actually I want to disseminate knowledge or you know I want to be a helpful person I want to be an inspiring or whatever it could be. I think that's sort of how we then think of goals and values also being linked together. There's nothing wrong with goal completion that people often think when I talk to to perfectionists in therapy that you're going to have me now being sloppy on purpose and look mm-hmm. all of these mistakes you're making me make. Are you not going to let me reach my goals anymore? Absolutely not. Absolutely it's about not. following that ambition that, you know, you have something great within you. It's that, that inner light you have that needs to shine. Mm-hmm. But I often think about the difference between, you know, burning bright versus burning out. 
And yeah. I wonder if we can think about as a final thing before we draw it to a close with the pause, purpose, play questions, which I fully have nicked from Elizabeth Day's work or you know, the <laughs> podcast, like three things you do every time. Like, oh, what can be my three things? I can't do the failures. Let's do three things to do with pause, purpose, play. Anyway, Love that. I wonder if we can think about drawing things to a close here with that mm. aspect of burnout. You know, when yeah. when it gets really, really difficult, when it's exhausting for people who are high striving, how do they mm. get that balancing act or integration act right between following their ambitions, their values and their goals around achievement versus actually you're, you're on the brink of burnout and you need to stop, you need to slow down? How can people have that distinction? Yeah, I, I think it comes, well, oh, so many different ways of answering that question. For me, if I just speak from my personal experience and what I might help a client with, it would be coming back to values in many ways, coming back to that purpose that you talk about. So it's noticing those times when the thing that you're doing is moving you towards what's important or is it moving you away? And learning with practice over time, those micro moments, like really tuning into that is this taking me towards what I'm doing or moving me away? You know, I'm not great at admin all the time, for example. I don't love it. I don't love writing <laughs> <does>. letters. <laughs> I don't write loving letters to doctors and that kind of stuff. And I used to have a big stack of them. They get overdue and, you know, the client had already gone off and seen their doctor and a month later I'm getting the, the, the letter written. I needed some better systems to remind me to do them and um which i have now and i needed to link them to their purpose of caring for my client and keeping everyone informed on how they're going and i actually find i don't mind doing admin mostly anymore um whether i'm and i do have an admin assistant that helps me with this now but whether i am like shifting an appointment so just before we met here I texted a client and said, would you mind coming in a bit later next Thursday? I did that because then I actually got a morning off, which is pretty, pretty rare because I had some other cancellations and she's fine, you know. Um, so I may, I did a bit of admin and that, in that instance, that was for my own value of self-care because I have a very hectic week um, next week. And and there's another time where I might be writing a letter or following up, trying to find, a, you know, a specific thing for a client and that's admin time and I don't mind either, you know, because it's all kind of part of what I do. So, it, so yeah, it, it, you can burn out, but if you can link the things that you're doing to what's moving you towards what's important, then... Uh, it adds a lot of purpose to what you're doing and you can stop doing a whole bunch of stuff that isn't moving you towards mm. what, where you're going as well. I now write my GP letters. I quickly skim read them through and I send them off and they're gone. I don't mm. check them. They're often, they have often have mistakes in them, I would say, and badly worded in some way. Um, and I can live with that. A, I know they, but they do the trick. Won't read they it. Do, they do the trick. They do the trick. And yeah, they're enough. They part, half the time they're probably not read. So, and I used to spend ages like crafting mm -hmm. these letters. And sometimes I do because they needed they're complex and they need to be. But a quick letter just now takes me less than five minutes. So it's this balance yeah. of the checking 
that I've found value in doing the task, but I'm doing less of the bits that I don't need to do, the checking, the editing, yeah. that kind of stuff, yeah. And that's, that's a big waste of time there that you can invest into things that do matter to you. Exactly, exactly. I can get all my letters done um, during my workday in gaps and quickly in my lunch break or in 30 minutes after I finish at the end of the day. I've seen six clients. I get to the end of the day, maybe have 15 minutes more work, you know, work to do, finishing off a letter, and I'm gone. I'm home. I'm actually in time to pick up my kids from school. So, mm-hmm. And that's important to me. You know, mm, I don't want to be doing them on a Sunday afternoon. No, and I guess that's sort of linking us to those questions around pause, purpose and play, that actually how we find time to switch off and follow that value of self-care mm. is really difficult with a very busy mind or, a, you know, a, maybe a background of needing to achieve to feel worth worth something. I was like, mm. worthful, that's not a word, um, to feel worth something. So mm. I wonder... How do you switch off these days, knowing you are in recovery but still recovering <laughs> from your uh, from your perfectionism? Yeah. How do you find rest and recovery, and giving yourself that permission to pause? Yeah, it is actually a really good question, and I'm glad you gave me a heads up on this because I had to. I've been really thinking about it as we've talked as well because I have really struggled with this, particularly as I launched a book last year, and I said to my husband, "I'm sorry, but I'm just going to have to be for the next few months." really busy working every day of the week at times because there's just a lot of people needing things from me right now and and he got it finally <laughs> so that was helpful so I, I then I felt kind of had a lot of trouble pausing then a lot of trouble unwinding uh, what I've tried to do since then and I, at varying degrees because there's times where I feel like I just my wheels are spinning and I can't slow down and I'm working a lot of days in a row. First of all, I have redefined work. If I'm enjoying it and I'm feeling like it's towards my values, I'm trying not to just sort of label it as work like like I'm just clocked in and I have to, you know, um, more mm-hmm. of a – I'm making it more playful. So I'm doing a lot more writing now and I'm enjoying that and I'm approaching that in a more playful way, but I'll, we'll come to play later. Um, and like today I had an early meeting and this is a late meeting for me. Um, I took some time off in the afternoon. Earlier mm. this week, I finished a novel, and it's the first time I finished a novel in a year. Uh, I finished it only in about a week. I really enjoyed it. Um, and what I, did you read out of interest? <laughs> oh, um, it was the next book caught by the author of Normal People, and it was called Beautiful World, Sally Where Rooney? Are You? Yeah. yeah. I'm going to go back and read Normal People because I love that TV show on Netflix, so... I just saw this book. Oh, let's let's do it together. I have normal people on my bookshelf, and I haven't read it yet. So uh, we'll do our mini book club. Have you seen it on Netflix? Oh my goodness, I haven't. Uh, (laughs) And I do have some Netflix time now that I do a lot of feeding, (laughs) so I have some Netflix time to fill. Break your heart a hundred times. Very beautiful. Anyway, so I also switched off watching Netflix series and stuff like that. But taking time off during the day, I've given myself permission to do that now, um, and across Mm. my week, and just sit and read a book and um, mm. I spent a lot of Sunday doing that actually it was beautiful um, but I, that's been I've always had a rule that if it's in work hours you know I can't exercise and I can't do other things from between you know eight and five that's mm. and it's like a rule that I've really I've known isn't helpful but I've really struggled to break it so yeah. being able to take some time off and pause because I know I'll probably do a little bit of work on the weekend because I know I've got some stuff to do tomorrow um, and so, yeah, I can take the afternoon off. 
it's fine. But there's a key word that comes up for me there when I listen to you speak about your your switching off, your your pausing, also connecting it with your purpose. Mm-hmm. And that is flexibility. Mm-hmm. You know, psychological flexibility is something that people in acceptance and commitment therapy talk about a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But actually to be flexible rather than rule governed there about must not exercise in the day versus mm-hmm. must not do work on the weekend. Actually, mm-hmm. we can even be prescriptive and rule governed in self-care if we're not yes. careful. Yes. And that's not moving towards what matters. It might be that actually I'm going to now be a little bit more busy for a few months. Mm. And I'm choosing to do that because it's going to lead me to something that really lights me up or this is a lifelong dream mm-hmm. or the opposite. Because I had to do the polar opposite with my book that came out today, uh, a year ago, actually. Oh, so as we're recording on the 11th of February, so it came out a year ago and I was first trimester pregnant and I, I had to let some of the things go. I had to consciously mm-hmm. choose to not follow some of the things that were part of my value system because mm-hmm. other values had to override that. You know, looking after my body when I was pregnant and feeling nauseous and the UK was in lockdown and the bookshops weren't open. When we think about making some of these really wise choices that you're describing there, what 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 does that take us towards? When mm-hmm. when you do a little bit of exercise during your quote-unquote work hours what does that Mm. take you towards what kind of parent are you when you when you pick your kids up from school so I wonder if we then think about leading that towards playfulness as well that when you're able to pause more regularly in a flexible way not in a prescriptive way and you are connected to your purpose what happens to your ability to play yeah and I have to admit I've always been pretty terrible at that um one of my values as a parent when my kids were little because mine are at the different end to you right now. My youngest is 13. One of my values was being a playful mum, and my that was that was the hardest one, <laughs> you know, really. Because yeah. um, I just tend to take things so seriously. So what I've learned with teenagers is that um, they're off in their room doing their own thing most of the time. So whenever they wander into my space and say, oh, mum, something or other, you know, request, need food, something. Can you take me somewhere? I just stop whatever I'm doing. Uh, even though I'm in the, I put my, I put my phone down, I turn away from my desk, I look at them and I just give them my 100% attention in that moment because I've realized that I'm not getting many of those moments and I'm going to make the yeah. most of them. So yeah, it's not, and I, and I try and hold those moments lightly too and not be demanding of them in that moment. Sometimes I am, you know, I guess, like, I haven't seen you all day, I will say wistfully. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> um, I try not to be too demanding and just sort of listen and hold it lightly and, you know, help them with whatever it is they need help with. Yeah. Um, don't get many chances to play, but when we do, we sort of do try and I do try and muck around with them a little bit. Um, and uh, and I think I'm finding it easier now. They're teens, maybe I don't know. Well, they can have a sense of humour. They can understand things that are more adult. Whereas when you have little children, there's a lot of pretend play, which yes, people who are perfectionistic can find really difficult because you have to let yourself go. You have to be silly, and yes. it's it can be really difficult. It was. It so was really where your discomfort sits. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely difficult. I mean, I and I could, but you know, you get distracted, and you had dinner to prepare, and you had you know chores to do, and you had yeah. work if you were working, and those kinds of things. So a lot of other um, demand, and the kids needed a lot more, so there was less time mm. to do those other things. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? How it changes the playfulness. I also think. Like even in recording these conversations with you, you know, let's hold it lightly. Let's just have a good time. Let's just find play 
in you know in, in our everyday work sort of muck about a bit as adults you know we can do that we're allowed it doesn't have to be yes. so serious you know no it doesn't and hence you know me me sharing the uh the prep work I did was just writing questions down from your book on, a, on an envelope a, an open bank letter envelope um and actually that that I think is one way to liberate yourself from the the tyranny of perfectionism not to make it go away, but to ease the hold that has on you, easing the grip and expanding a bit in your life, liberating yourself. And I think that's one of the most common words people say when I ask them to evaluate at the end of therapy, how do you feel about your life now? And how do you feel about the work we've done? And they say, I feel liberated. Mm. It's not gone, but it's not holding me so tightly anymore. Yeah. And I think that is where playfulness has a huge impact on people that I can be more flexible. I can be fun spontaneous I don't have to have an itinerary for every single trip I take minute by minute I can just go and get lose myself in the moment and I think that's where losing yourself in play with your children and forgetting about the to-do list for a moment it doesn't mean that we are going to be irresponsible and not feed them dinner but actually Mm. you know that's the uh you know I'm gonna swear now that's when we often talk about chuck it in the fuck it bucket (laughs) (laughs) because you can just be like okay it's okay would you say that with clients? Because that's exactly the oh, sort yeah. of thing. That's exactly the sort of thing I would say. With, I swear a lot. Sorry. In, in I, yeah, therapy. me too. The, the F word is, uh, oh, yeah. is part of the liberation. So I that's fine. It's very therapeutic. I'm going to put you on the spot with a very final question now, which I haven't prepped you for. And, you know, that inner perfectionist is going to go, oh, no, will I be good enough? But I'm going to ask you, what is the one tangible takeaway you want to give to the listeners? And I often ask people to do either a permission you want to give them or a pressure you want to take off them, what would that be? Yeah, yeah. I'm really, yeah, I'm thinking about this one. I, there's one thing I would love people to have permission, and um, if I could give them permission, I would say to, to please be kinder to yourself. You don't actually need to be hard on yourself to be effective. Uh, a lot of people believe that if they aren't tough on themselves, if they don't critique themselves and stay on top of themselves, they're going to slack off and be lazy and not achieve anything in their lives. But actually, really, in many ways, the reverse is true. And I think I would invite people to to test that out themselves because you can actually still hold yourself accountable for doing good work and for getting up in the morning. You're actually, if you don't critique yourself, you're actually still going to want to do the stuff that's important to you. That doesn't go away. There's really no need to berate yourself constantly while you do it. So if I could give people permission, if I had a magic wand, I would have people be kinder to themselves. And I think if they could do that, they would probably find that that would flow on to the people around them and to their children and they could show people that it's it's okay to be warm and to be compassionate and to be non-judgmental about yourself and to hold yourself you know tenderly I like to use that little activity it's on my website um, the baby chick exercise there's this um, if you could just hold your own suffering as tenderly and carefully that you would hold a little tiny baby chick and you could care for it in the same way, then you can take that with you 
so carefully and it still do all the things that you want to do in your life. So that would be my wish, Michaela, would be. Oh, it's a beautiful point of, of, of us ending there of actually how can you hold yourself more gently and showing up for yourself. And like you said, the, the people mentioned, um, you know, Kristin Neff's work on self-compassion, Laura Silverdine's search. Um, I said that wrong, Laura Silverdine's search. <laughs> Uh, it's so funny, isn't it? At the end of a conversation, and I'm also aware of my different conflicting values here of showing up with you and really sitting here, but also knowing that my baby is in the background and needs her next feed. Oh, so we're going to draw things to a close. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming online to this work, this um, podcast with me and your amazing book, The Act Workbook for Perfectionism. We'll show all the listeners how to live their best, no weight, imperfect life, and that will be more meaningful for them. So Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening to the end of this podcast. I absolutely loved this chat with Jennifer, which was long overdue. We've known of each other for years, but not managed to connect until now, which is peculiar considering that we do such similar work. If you're interested in learning more about Jennifer's work, don't forget to check out her book, The Act Workbook for Perfectionism. And also do come back to what we said in the beginning of the group coaching I'm starting for women who need this stuff, who need to be able to let go of perfect, to be able to live a more joyous, fulfilled life. Not being perfect at being imperfect, but good enough at doing so, making some small shifts rather than deep dives. If you're interested in this, do drop me a message on my website, thethomasconnection.co.uk. And as always, please do share this episode to others rate and review it so that other people can discover how important it is to burn bright without burning out. Until I see you next time, do take care of yourself. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's gonna help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically, showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www.thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. So that's the Thomas Connection .co.uk forward slash calm. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas. And you can find me on the Thomas Connection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media. <laughs>